Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. The sermon you're hearing today was preached by the late H.E. Schmuel at the annual camp meeting held at God's Bible School and College in Cincinnati, Ohio. Schmuel was one of the founders of the Interchurch Holiness Convention in 1952. This is a stirring message entitled, Why People Put Off God. Let us stand together while we read in John's Gospel, chapter 16. And beginning to read with verse 7, John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever Whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me. Father, we thank you for thy word, and thank you for the atmosphere tonight. Bless this word to our heart in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to talk to you somewhat tonight from the thoughts suggested just from this portion in John's Gospel concerning the gracious work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. These are the words of Jesus, and he's speaking to his disciples, and he is informing them and enlightening them as to the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say that I appreciate the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Some time ago, in rather a humorous vein, I someone... Uh, made some remark concerning preaching, and I said, a fellow really has to believe in the ministry of the Holy Ghost to be a preacher. I said, uh, I've lived with one woman now for 35 years, and in these 35 years I have sought to enlighten her from time to time concerning some courses of action that would really be for her... Uh, best welfare and our general welfare and best interest if she would just listen to what I have to say. <clears throat> However, either I'm a poor teacher or she's a slow learner. <clears throat> and uh, she still hasn't really caught on. I, I haven't given up. I'm still working. Sometimes I draw pictures. 
Sometimes I try to bribe her to understand and get the point. I haven't given up altogether, although I haven't really got too much through in 35 years. But when I got to thinking about preaching, here's a, here's a person that loves me. Here's a person that I love. Here's someone I've been with for 35 years, and I still have been unable to really enlighten her mind or clear her thinking in several regards. So I have to believe that the Holy Ghost is in my preaching because if I can't enlighten this person that I've known and loved and dwelt with and eaten with day after day and week in and week out and still couldn't do them any good, a fellow has to believe that the Holy Ghost is helping him to preach because how in the world could he ever hope to change the minds or the thoughts or the direction of people he doesn't even know and that in only 30 minutes? So I want to thank God for my confidence in the Holy Ghost. And he can take what I say and multiply it and make it sufficient to what you need. Or he can take an implication from what I have said, or he can reach your heart with absolutely nothing I have said that will meet the need of your heart and you'll find your way to God and truth in heaven. I thank God for the Holy Ghost. I wouldn't have the courage to stand here five minutes and talk to you about changing the direction of your life if it wasn't for the thoroughgoing confidence I have in the mighty ministry of the Holy Ghost. And in the end, we holiness people need to have our minds thoroughly disabused of the idea that the preacher can do anything. There are fellows that use a lot of psychology. There may be a lot of psychology that uh, emanates from certain types of ministry and certain men, but no thorough work is wrought in the hearts of men and women apart from the ministry of the Holy Ghost. And maybe a lot of our so-called converts that hardly have enough ambition to wobble away from the altar never stagger into their first prayer meeting or their first Sunday morning meeting are there because they're psychological converts and they are not truly born again by the Spirit of the living God. Now, uh, the Holy Spirit is here to work. He's working tonight. How gracious was the singing. How beautiful was the music. How grand and how impressive was the ministry of the Spirit. We have sensed His gracious presence already. Now, in this part of the delivery of the truth, He is still here to lead us and to guide us into all truth. Frankly, there is no experience in all the world as enjoyable as being a Christian. There's absolutely nothing as delightful as to know that one is at peace with God, in peace with his fellow man, and in harmony with himself, all in the will of God. If I ask tonight how many of you think that being a Christian is the grandest thing in the world, and I would ask you to say amen, and I am, will you give me a hearty amen if it's the best thing you've ever done? Amen. Now, friends, I have no doubt that's a genuine vote of sincere heart. You know, the question that always plagues me, and I've been a Christian now for a number of years, why is it that people put off giving their heart to God? Now, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. I wasn't born with a silver spoon or a theological spoon in my mouth. 
No grandma ever rocked me to the tunes of the church. I was rocked, but it was by the kids in the town, not by my grandmother, but not by my mother. And uh, when I uh, came to the altar that first time and gave my heart to God, and a bunch of people lined up and said, you won't do this and you won't do that and you won't do the other, I thought, boy, you're nutty as a fruitcake. You don't really know what this is all about because you don't know me. But really, friends, while those negative people came lined up with all the things I wouldn't do, I had been a stranger to the grace of God. I had a great joy. I had a deep well of satisfaction. I knew all things had passed away. I knew I was as light as a feather. I didn't know how long it was going to last, but I knew this, that I really delighted in what I had. But when the folks started lining up all these things and telling me what I would and would not do, it sort of threw a little cloud over me because I couldn't see myself doing all those things. But really, friends, I didn't really understand what the grace of God could do. Personally, I think they were out of the way telling a young convert all the things that were involved in the Christian life. If they'll just leave a fellow alone a little while to the Holy Ghost, he'll put him in school, give him the good word of God, and bring that fellow into a right relationship with God and himself and keep him perfectly contented while he's doing it. I have been so happy in the Christian life. I am so totally, thoroughly satisfied with being a child of God when I didn't really expect to be. I really didn't. Frankly, when I got saved, I thought, well, I really can't hang with this very long because I always had a good time. If there wasn't a good time, then we started one as soon as we got there. If something wasn't going, it didn't take long to turn the motor over and drop our nickel in and we were on our way. We had it going. They said, well, wait till Smokey gets here. Well, my dear friend, that's all I needed was an invitation or an opportunity. And so when I thought about a prayer meeting, I couldn't think of anything that could be deader than a prayer meeting. I couldn't think of anything that could be more dull than hearing some dumbbell get up for 45 minutes or an hour and a half or two hours, depending on his disposition, and preaching and preaching. I couldn't see myself tied down to one book. I'd always had a lot of books, and they were the other kinds, you know. I couldn't see myself tied down to one book. But then I came in as a Hottentot. This guy sitting down here on the front seat and this gal sitting next to him, her name is Mark Russell, he knew me when I was a beggarly boy and lived in a cellar damp and I had not a friend or a toy, but I had the Bible and the new birth. Mark Russell heard me preach my first sermon. He goes, he goes clear back. He knows how far my roots go. And friends, I want you to know that I was flabbergasted. That's the Greek word for surprised at what it really means to be a child of God. And after I was in the kingdom and have enjoyed these things, one day I said, why in the world is it that people resist and reject the overtures of divine mercy? Why is it that people put the brakes on? Why, some folks are putting the brakes on already. They said, uh-uh, here comes the commercial again. It's time to buckle up your seatbelt and get ready here. Why do we do that? Well, I've tried to analyze it, and tonight I want to offer some of the ideas that I have. Why do people resist the Spirit? Why do they fight off conviction? Why do they dig their heels in? Why do they oppose the ministry of the Spirit? Well, number one, I believe it's because of worldly affections. We are deeply entwined in the world and the crowd and the gang and the old crowd. 
And we really feel there's nobody like them. And really, in a real sense, there really is no one like them. When I was in the world a few years ago, it was this way with me. I didn't have much of anything, and so I kept my eyes open for a guy that did have something. You know, I told you one morning that I lived by my wits, and I tried to uh, assay the various uh, possibilities and potentials in the gang I went with. I tried to spot the guy that had the gals and the guy that had the money. He was the fellow to hang around. I usually hung around as long as his money hung, held out. When his money ran out, then of course it was time for me to run out. It was time to look for another fella. Where did you learn that, Smokey? I learned that because that's the way the same gang treated me. When I had it, they were my buddies. When I had it, they were my pals. When I had it, they were my gang. When I had it, I was a good guy. And when I didn't have it, and they didn't have it, we'd usually put our heads together and try to come up with some idea of where there could be a guy who might have it. And that's the world in general. And your affections are going to those who are not true blue friends, who will not stand by you when things grow dark, when sorrow came into my life, when I found myself in trouble with the law. I didn't have one solitary pal or friend that ever showed his face, that ever came around to give me any kind of help whatsoever. Not one of those good time Charlies ever showed up when the chips were down and I was having it rough. Your affection for the world is as effervescent as their affection for you. You'll find out sooner or later that their good time Charlies and their fine time Jane that'll hang around as long as things are held together and the parties are on and uh, the entertainments are there, whether it's liquor that's flowing or games that are played or entertainment or what have you. And when, when trouble begins to come, if you have sickness, you'll languish on a bed. If you have problems with the law, you'll go to jail alone. They'll turn their backs on you. For instance, take this case of Patty Hearst and the, and the Harrison. Here we have a typical example of those that once they get in trouble, they turn against each other, they gnash one another, they fight one another, they'll do anything in the, in the book to save their own hide. In the family of God, I have found the best of friends. I am among the best of friends I've ever had tonight. I look over here on my right, and here's Leonard and Alberta. I knew them before they were married. I know that couple would do anything in the world for me. I look on the platform here, our friends from long duration and some from short. I know most of you people, many of you older ones I know by name. They are among the finest friends that anyone could possibly have. And from the Atlantic to the Pacific and from Alaska to Florida, the Keys, and around the world, God's good children have stood by me. When I was, when I was in the old Cleveland Clinic and it looked like the lights might go out, that telephone switchboard was so busy until my wife had to beg them to cut the thing off and not let any more phone calls come through. All over the country, people were calling and assuring me of their prayers, wishing to talk to me. Letters poured in. People gave money. They wrote off my bill. They paid off my expenses. I came out of that experience with a patched up heart almost as good as new and the bills all paid and money left over because, friends, I found real friendship. Those of you that are here tonight and you really think the gang in the high school or the gang in the college really care, the first time you get burned, you'll find out they'll let you to rot 
or let you to burn in your own fire, they'll leave you to yourself. Uh, but why? Here we sit here with the brakes on. Well, just because of a few cronies, it may be a girlfriend, it may be a boyfriend, it may be someone else, it may be a football team or a baseball team or something or other that's influencing you and you have a deep attachment there. But I'm here to tell you, my friend, they'll not stand by when the chips are down. There are people here tonight that will resist the Holy Spirit because they're waiting for someone else to move. I think this is probably one of the most common reasons why people resist the Spirit. How many times have we gone back through the congregation and put our hand upon the shoulder of a young man only to have the young man stand there cold and stiff and look in another direction and look away? How many times have we gone back and talked to a young lady, maybe a young, uh, maybe a, a young lady with a baby in her arm and her husband standing by her side? How many times do we talk to young couples like this? Say, young lady, don't you feel your need of God? See her chin, chin begin to tremble. See the tears trickle down her face. Hold on to her baby or clutch your child a little bit closer and look up at this handsome a hunk of humanity here. What's she doing? She's waiting for him. She's waiting for him to take the first move. She's looking to him for leadership. Young man, wouldn't you like to give your heart to God? No sign, no move. Maybe a trace of conviction. Maybe a measure of conviction on his heart. But he doesn't make any move. This is so typical. There are young couples here tonight that, are, that perhaps are unsaved. You're unmarried. And you're interested in each other. And you've been putting off this matter of making a real move. And she's waiting on you and you're waiting on her. I want to let you girls in on a secret. And I want to make some fellas mad tonight. I don't want to, but I'm afraid I'm going to. You know what, girls? These great big hunks, about six foot four inches tall, great big broad shoulders like an all-American football player, you know, the wide shoulders and the tapered waist and the bulging biceps. Some of those birds are the biggest cowards you'll ever bump into. A lot of those guys have a great big old yellow streak as big as my hand that runs right down their backbone. Now you guys can take me out and beat me up after a while if you want. It'll just prove what I'm talking about. Anybody that beat up a little old Dutchman that's had a real heart condition like I've had, you've got to, you've really got to be yellow. Because somebody your size like my, like uh, Bullock over here. <laughs> These great big fellas, you know, that can eat a peck of potatoes that are sitting down a chocolate pie, put away a gallon of a milkshake, you know. These big husky guys that wear size 12 or 13, drop a cement block on their toe, they shake it off. Why, it doesn't hurt at all. They never need a Band-Aid. They never need Mercurochrome. They're really tough. They're great big he fellows. But let me tell you, the little secretary that sits at the desk where they go through on their way to work or they punch the time clock, that pretty little thing sitting there, they're scared to death of her because if they go to the mourner's bench and they'd hit the sawdust trail, they're afraid that little iodine sitting there would somehow or other get the word. And she'd look up very prettily from her uh, switchboard and say, I say, big boy, I hear you hit the sawdust trail. 
and they don't have the intestinal fortitude to take that kind of twitting. They can shake off a lot of things, but they can't shake off a laugh. They can shake off a lot of things, and they'll fight over a lot of things, but they don't have the moral courage to put their big old number 13 in the aisle and say, come on, girl, we're going to serve God no matter what the world and the flesh and the devil have to say. And I want to tell you something else. There are some big, broad-shouldered men here tonight that are in the kingdom of God because that little hank of hair and rack of bones that you married a few months back had the temerity and the courage to step out and serve God when you didn't have the gumption to do it. Now, come on. I told you you're going to make some people mad tonight, but this is really true. I have conducted surveys across the country through the years, and I have found out almost without exception that most of the men who have been saved, if they were not saved when they were married, were saved because they had a little old gal who moved out to the mourner's bench and put one kid on side saddle and drugged the other one down the aisle and got down there with a little old knot of bobbing and said, well, if he won't go, I'm going to go. I want to raise these children for God. I want a family older. I want blessing at the table. I want God on our place, and, and I'm going to go. And that family saved tonight, sanctified tonight, serving God tonight. The, the husband's in and the wife, of course, is in and the family's in. Ah, oh, because Mary Jane stepped out with her little old four, number four, uh, triple A's and waited down there when he didn't have the intestinal fortitude to do it. And he tried to make it hard for her. He might have even made life a little bit miserable for her for a while. But down in his little old heart, way down here, he had a secret pride. He had a pride in that little old gal. And when he went downtown, he might have been a little bit chagrined about the way she appeared with her long hair and with her long sleeves and her, and her long dress. But down in his heart, he was glad that he married a gal. He hadn't miscalculated. He'd married someone with character. He married someone that had real steel in their bones. He, he was happy that he had a gal like that to be the mother of his children. That's right. And I'm going to prove what I have to say. I want to ask a question here. How many of those of you that are here tonight that are married, that will take in most of the folks on this side and on that side, you're married tonight. You men are in the kingdom of God tonight. Your wife was in first. And sir, you're saved and serving God tonight. Because you had a gal like that, would you put your hands up? You see those hands around? They're all over the place, and it happens again and again and again. Oh, friends, don't resist the Holy Ghost because you're waiting on someone else. If you're here tonight, young mother, and you're waiting on big boy to make a move, forget big boy. Step right out and mind God. Maybe by the time you're halfway down the aisle, you'll see the clumsy old boy sort of stumbling down and say, well, that's what I ought to do. After all, girls, boys are slow to catch on. So move out, do what you know God wants you to do, and you'll find out that if he's the man you think he is, he'll be there. If he's not the man you think he is, then pray that God will make him the man he ought to be. And girls, if you're going with a guy that doesn't have the moral turpitude to step out and mind God, then you better ditch him now rather than have a ball and chain around your neck that'll drag you to hell. He's unworthy of your love. He's unworthy of your life. And on the other hand, fellas, 
if you're the head of the house like God intends you should be, and your little gal is sort of worldly, a little flipper fanny that isn't too interested in the way, don't wait for her to get in the mood. Put that big old cloud hopper of yours out in the aisle. Hey, man, take her by the arm and say, come on, honey, this is the way to go. This is where God wants us. This is the way to live. Let's have an unbroken family around the throne of God. Let's move out and serve the Lord. Come on, dear. Amen. That's good practical preaching, whether you know it or not. But there are people who are dilly-dallying around. Well, what do you think, honey? Should we go? Well, not tonight. The next time it's, well, what do you think, honey? Well, not tonight. I tell you, sir, this is your night. This is your time. This is your opportunity. For Jesus' sake, move out, walk up, obey God. Don't wait on somebody else. You may keep on waiting and waiting and waiting and drop into hell before a decision is ever made. And the longer you put it off, the more you have to repent of and the less time you have to repent in. There are others that somehow or other resist the Spirit because of what I call wishful thinking. That is, they say, well, not now. It'll be a little easier maybe a year from now when I get out of school or I graduate from college. It'll be a little easier after we get married. It'll be a little easier when we move to a new location. Maybe some of these things that are bothering me will clear up. And while you're waiting, the devil's strategy is to get you more deeply involved than ever before. And I have failed even once to find where anything ever cleared up. The longer you wait, the more confused and bewildered you'll become. The more the devil seeks to involve you, either in money or in sex or in some other kind of a mess. And the longer you put it off, the deeper the mess you find yourself in. And the more reason the devil gives you for doing nothing about it. The thing to do is to mind God now. It's to walk in the light now. Nothing is going to get that much better without the grace and help of God. But everything can be better in the will of God, by the help of God, in the power of the Holy Ghost. You'll find sufficiency in the might and power of the Spirit to be all that God would have you to be. There are other individuals who resist the Holy Spirit because of what they imagine to be weaknesses in their character. I mentioned this the other morning as I gave my personal testimony of how in the course of my life there came a time in my life when the devil said to me, you can't make it after all. You have the wrong combination. Do you know what your father was? Your father was a, was a heavy drinker. Your dad was a bootlegger. You know about your mother and her background and you know the rest of the catalog of your family. And really... You don't stand too good a chance. You don't have the necessary character qualities to really, after all, most of these guys, well, they've been born into good homes and they had a good mother and they had a good environment, so they, it was just natural for them to be naturally good. But you're naturally bad. You have a natural disposition to do evil and to get into trouble. Look at all the deviltry you've been into already. Look at all the problems you've created already. So what, uh, you, know, you just can't make it. This religion thing, now remember I'm coming out of a heathen background. This religion thing isn't really for you, Smokey. This is for somebody else. This is for kids that have been raised in the church cradle. 
And I almost followed that until one day the Holy Ghost showed me that I had a new father and that I was in a new family and that I had a new life and that God was my father in heaven. Hallelujah. And I'm here to tell you, sir, that regardless of your genes and regardless of your chromosomes and regardless of your environment, there's a God in heaven who will give you a new birth experience, put a new nature in you, make you strong to stand and give you grace and victory to live day by day exactly where you are. Amen. There are other individuals who put this matter off because they're concerned about the life's call. Well, I'm afraid if I'd give my heart to God, then I'd get called to be a preacher or called to be a missionary, and, and I don't have the qualifications. I could never be a preacher. I could never be a missionary. I could... Never lead singing like Bullock. I could never sing like uh, Beckham. I, uh, I, I, I just couldn't do that. That's, uh, that's not for me. Friend, it's not for you to make up your mind what you think God wants you to do. Personally, personally, I believe that God very, very seldom deals with anybody concerning these issues when it comes to the new birth experience, when it comes to getting right with God. I don't think you need to worry about that. Even if God is talking to you about some of those issues in your life, which I doubt that he really is, I'm here to tell you that he makes no mistake that there's a sufficiency of supply to be and to do whatever God wants you to do. It's not yours to worry about. It's yours to be simply and totally surrendered and obedient to the will of God. For after all, my friend, he will choose whom he will. He will empower and he will invigorate and he will endow whom he will. And he doesn't call any. It's not up to you to judge whether you can or whether you can't. It's yours to surrender. It's yours to walk in the light. It is yours to obey. It is yours to do the thing that God wants you to do. And the resources and the abilities are his to supply. Friends, as I had a gal at the altar here sometime, I can say, well, Brother Smule, I don't, I don't want to be a missionary. I don't want to be a missionary. Well, she's all worried about being a missionary. That wasn't the real issue in her life at all, being a missionary. She didn't have the qualifications for a mission field. She's a thousand miles from the mission field. The devil just merely got her on, on a detour and got her thinking about snakes and alligators and elephants and tigers and cockroaches and stinging adders, and here she was. She couldn't be a missionary. Well, God wasn't talking to her about being a missionary. God was talking to her about a complete surrender. She had, didn't have the qualifications for a missionary. She was a million miles from those qualifications. If you're finding yourself on some kind of a hang-up, young people, on account of your, a call to Christian service, and you can and you can't, my advice is to resolve it in God. Put it in God's hands. Don't worry about it. Don't try to settle the issue yourself. You're in no condition to settle that issue. You settle the primary issue, and that primary issue is get the controversy settled between your altar and the throne of God. Get things straightened up between you and God, and you'll find out that all the resources and all the divine help that is needed will be there for whatever God wants you to do. Amen. There are other individuals who resist the Holy Spirit because of the wickedness of others. And I trust you're praying tonight. This is an entirely different kind of message, but it's a message seeking to answer the objections that are in the hearts of so many people as to why they do not really seek God. Others say, well, I tell you why. It's because there's hypocrites in the church. 
If you take care of the hypocrites in the church preacher, I'll pile in. But my dear friend, I'm here to tell you we'll never take care of all the hypocrites. There's some A number one hypocrites here tonight. You know them. I don't know who they are, but you know them. Every, every backslider and every sinner can pick out a hypocrite. They may not be a genuine hypocrite, but usually the guy who is seeking for someone to hide behind has to be smaller than the object behind which he desires to hide. I used to go out calling in my uh, church in Rochester and knock on the door and try to, oh, yes, well, we're so glad to see you. Yes, yes, yes. How about, well, you got some hypocrites over there. Get the hypocrites out of the church. Well, I, I just had to admit I couldn't get the hypocrites out of the church. Matter of fact, I wasn't even trying to get the hypocrites out of the church. The church house is to help all people, and we just have to acknowledge there are people who don't measure up. There are folks who don't walk in the light. I preached earnestly. I dealt effectively and personally with many people, but I just couldn't clean everybody out, and I wasn't going to invite everybody out, but the gospel was there to transform them. I've seen a lot of hypocrites changed by the grace of God. I've seen a lot of their lives genuinely renovated by the power of God. I said, well, so, and they said, well, they're so-and-so. Don't they go to your church? Yes, they do. I said, on the other hand, how about old Pop Helmick that lives up there on High Street and operates the wallpaper store? I said, how about him? Do you think he's a hypocrite? Oh, no. Everybody all knew old Pop Helmick. He'd operated the wallpaper store for over 50 years in town. He had a reputation for integrity and veracity all up and down the valley. How about another one I would mention over here? How about this one? Oh, no. I said, now you're wise enough to know the difference between a hypocrite and the genuine. I'm asking you to attend our services, to come to our church. We are trying to help the hypocrite. We're not condoning their hypocrisy, but we're endeavoring to lead them to God and help them. We want you to come in. Why don't you get a genuine experience of grace in your heart and show these people how the life is to be lived? Your life of transformed grace and glory will not uh, come upon a, a barren ground. Your object lesson of divine grace will not fall upon blind eyes. Come on, show us the way. There are people who dig their heels and say, oh, no, you got people around that don't pay the price. you got people that don't measure up. My friends, they're gas. I don't give up driving an automobile because they've got several tanks of gas that had water in them. I don't give up eating in restaurants because they've gone in and been cheated several times in restaurants by a poor serving or by a falsification on the menu. I try to understand some of the problems behind them. And, sir, there's no need for you to give up on your hunger and your thirst after God because there's a few blanks around, because there's a few people who fail to measure up to God's will and God's way. Since you can identify the wrong, then you know what is right. Since you know the hypocrite, then you know the genuine and the real. I appeal to you in the name of honesty and in the name of integrity. For Jesus' sake, don't resist the Holy Ghost because of hypocrisy in the lives of some that profess to know him. Amen. There are other individuals who resist the call of the Spirit because sin is too strong. There's a brother small, I tried and I failed and, and I, I've sought God. But I can't live it. I've tried to live it. But I've come short. I can't make it. Sin's too strong for me. I want to make a confession. Sin is too strong for all of us. There isn't any individual here that can live 
the Christian life and live a life above sin on their own. If anybody lives above sin, they live above sin because of the indwelling power of Jesus Christ. Because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. I want to make a confession here, Brother Bullock. I cannot live one centillionth of a second the victorious life without the continuous shed blood of Jesus Christ upon my soul. I don't live this life by habit. I don't live this life because I got into some kind of a rut or a routine. I live this life by the power of the resurrected Christ who dwells in my heart and my life. And you can't live it and I can't can't live it on our own, but there's one who will live the life in us and through us and by the power of God. That's the secret of it all. Sure, sin is too strong for us. Sure, we've tried and failed. I'm sure there are a number that have tried and failed here tonight. I believe you can get saved and live above sin. I believe you can live above sin and not, not sin even once. I believe that. But I also know from honest experience that the spare tire of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 is there if any man does sin, if any man does stumble, if any man is overtaken in the fall, if you'll, if you'll confess your sin, there is mercy and there is forgiveness with God who will freely and totally forgive you of your sin and of your failure. Amen. When I was saved... I lost 75% of my vocabulary. Have you other fellows lose most of your vocabulary? I was always rather a voluble fellow. That means I had a lot of words, but they were bad words. They weren't good words. I was always accustomed to saying things rather strongly and saying them with rather a certain degree of color. And it's the kind of color that sailors use. It was a deep blue, a deep purple. It was black most of the time. And when I got saved, I lost my vocabulary. But I did have a trouble a time or two, Ray Smith, with some of the old, the old uh, expressions coming back. And one day I was in, uh, when I was in high school and playing a little football, I was in the locker room trying to get ready there. And one of my old pals, Les James, said to me, said, Hey, Smokey, how about going up to the state line? State line is where we always went and played cards and did a lot of other things, you know, and it was a drinking spot and a drinking place, and I was just a young guy. I was the lightest guy on that little old rinky-dink team, weighed 110 pounds, but I had enough rebellion and stubbornness and hatred in my heart when I was saved to sink a fella straight into hell. But I'd been saved. It was the talk of the school. And so here I am getting myself cleaned up and ready to go home and left the old leader, the old gang that I used to go with, he said, hey, Smokey, how am I going? I looked over and said, Les, blankety, blank, 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 I don't go there anymore. My brother, that place had a lot more laughter and roar than you've got right here. That place exploded in laughter. They just roared. Ha, 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 ha. Something hit me in my heart. A dagger hit me. I was just about ready to go. I grabbed up my little old bag and what few belongings I had, and I headed out of there. I knew I'd blew, I blew it. I'd only been saved about three weeks. I knew I'd blew it. I could hear their laughter ringing in my ears as I went out the, out the shower room door and down the hall and across the town. I could hear them ringing. I went to the place where I was staying with some people that had just newly been saved. I came in the house and 
there was Mrs. Johnston in the room there, and I said, hey, what does a guy do when he swears? Oh, she says, it's terrible. Well, I knew that. I wish religious people could compose themselves a little better than they do. Oh, it's terrible. Well, I knew it was bad. And she said, would you build a little altar in your heart, and you ask Jesus to forgive you? I wish religious people could also get their symbolism straightened out to new converts. Build a little altar in your heart. All I could think of was a bench about that. How in the world? I didn't understand anything about having an altar in your heart. The only altar I'd ever been to was the one in the church. The altar, only altar I could think about was that bench in the meeting house where I had prayed and God for Christ's sake forgave me. But I knew I was miserable. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you honestly, I didn't know there was any way out. When I came and asked that question, I thought, Brother Rex Bullock, that was the end of the line. I thought I'd had it. I thought that God now would get his ounce of flesh. I thought that I'd blown it once and I would never be given another chance. She saw the bewilderment on my face and turned in my direction and she said, Well, Harold, she said, I mean, go someplace and pray and ask Jesus to forgive you. That's the first time in my life I knew that I could do such a thing as that. Of course, I'd only been saved a little while. But I went through the dining room. I went through the little old kitchen and out through the shed. I stepped out in the October sun. My heart was like a ton of lead. This is the first time I ever, ever tried anything like this. I said, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry for those words. I don't know where they came from. I didn't mean to let those kind of things go out. I was just trying to, just trying to express myself. Oh, forgive me. And out of the azure blue sky on a bright October day about 5.30 in the evening on the back steps of that little old place on James Street in Faulkner, New York, all of heaven's peace was dumped into my soul. All my air, all the blunder of that hasty word, those hasty words rolled off of my soul. The tears poured down my cheek. I walked around the house with my hands in my pocket thanking God for forgiveness, thanking God for another chance, thanking God for another opportunity. I didn't have any desire to turn back. I didn't want to turn back. But really, Rex, I didn't know that I could go on until that moment. And that's a lesson, sir, that has served me good and it will serve you well if you're here tonight and you fail somewhere along the line. Oh, you can't do it on your own. I ask him to scrub my vocabulary. I ask him to give me a new one. I ask him to somehow plant new thoughts and new thought patterns and new word patterns in my mind to reprogram me in a way that would be pleasing to him. I'm happy to tell you that from that day to this, I have been completely programmed. Those words of vile renunciation concerning Jesus have never passed my lips again. I have only adoration and worship and praise and honor and glory. My cross all cries out, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that's been slain. I thank thee for power and grace and glory to live this life, not because of anything I have done, not because of an education, not because of a theological spoon, but because of the inner resources of Jesus Christ. And if you're here tonight and you fail, whether it's over, whether it's over self-abuse, or whether it's over sex, or whether it's over drugs, or whether it's over the old crowd, or whether it's over worldly affections, or whether it's over some unfaithfulness, I'm here to tell you that if you'll get down your old prayer bones and say, Oh God, I'm sorry, I failed thee, but if you'll forgive me and give me another chance, I promise thee that by thy grace I'll live the life, I'll walk the way, 
country that seem to preach at times that Jesus Christ is a hawkshaw and he's out hunting for an incriminating clue. He's going around with a great big spyglass and he comes to Rex Bullock and he said, Ah, oh, I got it, Rex. I got something on you, old boy. You're not going to get in. I've got something on you. You're not going to get to heaven. You're not going to get in the kingdom of God. I found something to keep you out. That's a caricature of the grace and the character and the nature of our God. He's not trying to keep anybody out. I want to serve notice tonight that Jesus Christ had the greatest bloodletting the world has ever known to give you a transfusion that you may live. He suffered excruciating pain that put you on your feet. He's not trying to keep you out, young man. He's well acquainted with your failure, young lady. He knows all about the sin that plagues your soul. He's well aware of the deep defeats that plague your life. But if you'll confess them, sir, he's willing and just to forgive them all. Amen. Oh, hallelujah, sir. Hallelujah. But there are people who say, well, I've tried and I failed. Jerry McCauley failed 17 times. 17 times he hit the mourner's bench. 17 times he was baptized by the Salvation Army. 16 times he failed. Sixteen times he came short, supposing they'd have given up. No, they followed the old river rat right back down to the river and worked on him again and brought him back in. Oh, friends, listen, it's easy for you to sit over here and judge young people or judge other people because they don't come through and they don't do this and they don't do that. I'm here, sir, to tell you that the vessel that is marred in the hand of the potter, he'll make it again. I believe I'm talking to some people here tonight that your life has been marred and the plan for your life has been marred and you've just sort of folded up and said, what's the use? I can't make it. You're still hanging around. You're here tonight, but you're not here by accident. You're here by divine providence. Let me tell you, the vessel that is marred in the hand of the potter, the potter said, I will make it again. That's a beautiful picture there. Here is clay that has been marred. Here is clay that is, would be seemingly be worthless and would be only be fit to be thrown aside. But the potter says, I will make it again. So he puts the clay back upon the wheel. This potter represents Jesus Christ who is working again. All the creative powers of Christ are here. All the dynamic and energetic and design of the blessed sovereign Christ are here. And under the skill of his hands, under the might and power of his inner dynamic, out of a heart overflowing with love and deep compassion, he molds this clay again. Carefully and deftly and accurately, he makes a vessel unto honor. And if you're here tonight, sir, if you'll call out, as it were, back upon the potter's wheel and let the creative Christ once again put the strong, muscular, artistic hand of Christ upon your heart, let the creative powers of the Son of God work upon your soul, he can make you again a vessel unto honor and fill you with the Holy Ghost and send you out to bless the world. Glory be to God. Somewhere down the line, the devil's told us all that we couldn't make it. You've tried and failed. How many times have you been at the altar? Can't count them, preacher. 
Don't come anymore because it doesn't do any good. Devil told me it wouldn't do any good before I ever left. That's why I'm not coming. So will you be leaving? God is here to meet your need. God is here to reclaim you. God is here to save you. God is here to sanctify you. I only give you this word of warning in closing. The Spirit may terminate His work. There comes a time when the Spirit will work no more. That's a sad time. There comes a time when the Spirit of God no longer deals with us. That's a tragic day. But He's here tonight and He's dealing. He's here tonight and He's working. He's here tonight and He's forgiving. He's here tonight and He's molding. His power can make you what you ought to be. I was in Fort Wayne, Indiana a few years ago in a tent meeting. The last night of that meeting, or the last Saturday night of that meeting, a young woman came out from the side and came down the aisle in great confusion and great anguish of heart. And as she came, she said, Oh, God has left me. God has left me. I graduated from God's Bible school. She got the front. She said, People pray for me. I'm a God's Bible school graduate. I had a call to the mission field. I married outside the will of God. I spurned his love. And I'm trying to get back to God. But God isn't dealing with me. Oh, pray for me. Pray for me. She piled in at that altar there. You thought the way she came that God was dealing with her. Really, God was dealing. But she realized that she'd gone a long way. The people gathered around her and formed a circle. It was only after much prayer and agony that eventually the Spirit of God enabled her to prayer. Her dishevelment, her excitement, her inner turmoil that was demonstrated by her confession was only there. That was a human uh, manifestation. That was despair. She was aware in her heart and her mind she'd done this fight to the Spirit of grace. And after a long period of prayer, the wrestling ended. The anxiety ended. She stood up and said, Oh, I thank God the Holy Spirit has come back and brought me back to himself. I thank you, saints. I thank you for praying for me. But she said, I came awfully close. She did come awfully close, and there are many others that come awfully close. There are people that hinder the work of the Spirit and resist the work of the Spirit, but to their own peril. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. i